we're doing a series of lessons entitled Discovering the Mission of God this year, in which we're looking at what God is doing in the world, more specifically as we get later in the year, what God is doing in us, in me, in you, as he's trying to accomplish what his purpose is in the world. But we started at the beginning. I know that's a strange place to begin, but we went back to Genesis chapter 1 and looked at how God created us, why he created us, uh, what we were gifted to be and to do. We went to, from there to the fall. We went how, and looked at how sin spread rapidly. Two weeks ago, we focused on God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, first three verses, some of the most important texts in all the Bible. And of course, God moved from Abraham to the entire children of Israel through Isaac and Jacob and then his 12 sons that comprise this nation known today still as Israel. And last week, John Micah and William talked about the second covenant and the fact that Moses was called at a very important time. It had been about 500 years from when God had made his covenant with Abraham. And the people are now slaves down in Egypt, and they had in many ways forgotten about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, one of the questions Moses said to God is, if they ask me what your name is, what do I tell them? I mean, they don't even know God's name as God. And, and so John Micah and William went through and talked about while the people had forgotten, God had remembered and you open up the opening chapters of Exodus, and God remembers what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he visits his people. He took notice of what the Egyptians were doing to them, and as a result of that, he invited Moses to be a part of the process. Moses, just like I worked through Abraham, I want to now work through you. And of course, if you go and look at what Moses did, he made every excuse in the world as to why he wasn't the man for the job. And God said, yes, you are. I have picked you. And the end result is that God rescued the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And I love this text here out of Exodus 3. God gives Moses a sign. Just as he had given Noah the sign of the rainbow, he gives Moses a sign and he says, listen, I'll be with you. I'll be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you're going to worship at this mountain. And of course, if you continue to read through the Bible, you see that's exactly what happened. God brings uh, Israel out of Egypt after the plagues. They, they cross through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army tries to follow the people witness as God wins a great victory over one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, nation of the world at that time. And then they go to Mount Sinai, the place where God had appeared to Moses there in the burning bush. And there they worship God. But they do more than just worship God. Something very important takes place. You turn over to Exodus 19, and if you've not highlighted these verses in your Bible, if you underline and highlight, underline or highlight these verses. These are some of the most important verses as God moves from his covenant with just Abraham, Isaac, and of course Jacob later, to now making a covenant with all of their descendants. And look at what God says. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt 
They had witnessed it. They had witnessed the plagues. They had witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea. They had witnessed the pillar of fire. They had witnessed the pillar of smoke. They had seen all of this. And how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself here at this mountain. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. I love the language that's used there. Although the whole earth is mine, I mean, obviously, we all belong to God. He says, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But I want you to notice right in the middle of that paragraph. He says, if you keep my commandments, obey my commandments, and keep my covenant. God's fixing to enter into covenant. Now, now covenant is not something that we're used to as Americans. We're used to contracts. You know, you buy a house, you go in, you sit down, you're taking out a loan, they give you a stack of, you know, 300 papers to sign, you read all those papers, and then, right, and then you sign them, and you enter into this contract, which basically says you pay, you get to own, you don't pay, we'll foreclose on you, all right? It's a contract. And so we're all used to contracts. We enter into all kinds of contracts. Businesses are constantly entering into contracts. Covenants are slightly different. They're, they're more serious. They're more binding in nature. In fact, the only covenant that I think most of us are familiar with in American society is marriage. Marriage is not a contract. June and I did not sit down. And she negotiated, and I negotiated, and, you know, you'll take out the trash. Okay, I'll agree to do that. If, if you'll do the cooking, I'll agree to do that. You know, first of all, I don't like to cook, and June don't like to carry out trash. And so we had to reverse those two, you know, right? You know, I mean, no, we didn't do that. We didn't sign a contract. We entered into a covenant, which is why, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, God would refer to Israel as his wife. Very much like a marriage covenant. God was the husband. Israel was his wife. You turn to the New Testament. And guess what? We are the church, the bride of Christ, who is our husband. And we are his bride. And so marriage becomes, in many ways, kind of a reflection of these covenants that God keeps entering into with his people. Now, notice the result of entering into a covenant. And again, reflect back if you're married on your own marriage. He says, first of all, you're going to be my treasured possession. June and I are coming up this year on our 43rd wedding anniversary. And uh, I, I oftentimes tell June when we're sitting on the back deck in the swing, uh, I say, honey, I don't know of anything in the world I'd rather be doing than sitting here with you in this swing just enjoying what God has given to us. You know, there's something about growing old together. And, and there's something precious about being together. You know, and so June and I, we, we enjoy watching, you know, a television program together. Now, I have to be careful what those programs are. You know, I'll turn on the TV and, and of course, I'm like a lot of you men out here. If I see a movie I've only seen 50 or 60 times, I want to watch it again. You know, and, and June's philosophy is very different. June's philosophy is, why do you want to watch it again? Do you think it's going to have a different ending? And, of course, it doesn't. And so June and I have to find something we both like so that we can watch it together. 
Uh, eating is much the same way. Uh, June and I have a very different approach to eating. Uh, I, I saw a cartoon this last week that I had to take to June. Uh, it was a cartoon about a guy who was in the grocery store, and, and as he was walking over in the produce section, there was a person laid out on the, on the floor. I mean, they, they were gone. They were gone. And, and the police were there, and the guy goes up, and he says, can I ask what happened here? And said, yeah, this is a definite uh, case, because right next to the body was a half-eaten bowl of hummus. And said, this is definitely a case of homicide. All right. If y'all don't know what hummus is, that went right over your head, okay? If you do know what hummus is, either you liked it or you did, okay? That's, that's kind of the way that one works. But June and I, even with all of our differences, we do treasure one another. And God said, that's the relationship I want to have with you. I want you to be my treasured possession. And then he says, and then I have a job for you. And what he says to Israel is, he says, I want you to be for me a kingdom of priests fascinating phrase there that we don't spend, I don't think, near enough time with. And then he goes on, and I want you to be a holy nation, planting them in the midst of what at that time would have been some of the most wicked nations in all the earth. And he says, right in the midst of them, I want you to be holy. And, and, and in order to do that, he then enters into covenant with them. Now, what's fascinating about ancient Near Eastern covenants is that these were very common in the ancient world. Uh, scholars have gone and researched covenants from different kingdoms, you know, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Hittites, the Egyptians. And what they've discovered is that there's a certain regiment that goes into every covenant that these nations would enter into. And so when God entered into a covenant with Israel, he came down. And very much like the rest of the nations of the earth said, I'm going to enter now into a covenant with you, Israel. Now, I want you to think back about your own wedding. Uh, when I do premarital counseling and preparing for a wedding, I will give the couple what is basically a generic outline of the traditional wedding. And the traditional wedding is, first of all, you've got the introductory remarks by, by the preacher, uh, you have then the giving away of the bride by someone in the family. And then the couple will come up and you have the traditional sermon. Uh, some preachers, it's very short. Some preachers, it's very long. But you have kind of the traditional sermon. And then you have the, the vows. You have the promises that you make to each other. And then you have the rings that seal that ceremony. And then you have the pronouncement of husband and wife. And then you have the, the kissing of the bride. I mean, you have all of these stages that you go through. And I sit down with a couple, and I'll go through every one of them. And I'll say, now, you know, do, do you, going, you going to do this and this and this? Yes, 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 yes. I remember sitting down with, with a family down in North Mississippi, and I got down to the last part, and I said, okay, at that point in time, I'll say, you may kiss your bride. And they said, we're not going to do that. And I said, excuse me? They said, we're not going to do it. Now, you need to understand, and of course, I'm always hesitant to say this. It was one of my, my first cousins that I was performing the wedding. You know, people always accuse people in Mississippi of marrying their first cousins. Well, I performed the ceremony, okay? But I asked my first cousin, I said, why in the world are y'all not going to kiss at the end of the wedding ceremony? And they said, well, it's because of Uncle So-and-so. And I said, what about Uncle So-and-so? And say, so, well, he loves to, right when the couple's kissing, he loves to yell out, Yee-haw! 
and we don't want him yelling out. And so it's the only wedding I ever did where there was no kissing of the bride, at least not at that moment. I mean, they did not kiss one another. They just turned around, I presented them, and away they went. Well, you always have these kind of stipulations, these, these steps that you go through. And I want you to notice, as we look at these that God goes through here with Israel, how that in so many ways you and I have gone through the same set of, of covenant uh, uh, steps as we have entered into a covenant with God through Jesus Christ. And you'll see that very quickly. The first one is the introduction of the speaker. I mean, whenever you would see a covenant, you would have the primary party identify who they are. And so you turn over to Exodus 20, and you see right off the bat, I am Yahweh, you're God. And so right off the bat, God identifies who he is, which is fascinating because when you get over into the Gospels, especially John's Gospel, you have Jesus constantly identifying who he is. I mean, with all kinds of I am statements, just like God. You turn over, for instance, to John 14, 6. Jesus, upper room, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know where I'm going. Lord, we don't know where you're going. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he would say, I am the good shepherd. And he would say, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I mean, all through John's gospel, Jesus is identifying who he is in relationship to us. Just like God did to Israel. You go to the second one, you have the historical relationship. In other words, why is this relationship even existing? And if you notice, the very next phrase here in Exodus 22, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm the God who is the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I've seen what the Egyptians have done to you, and I've brought you out, I've redeemed you, I've rescued you. That's who I am. And of course, when you turn over to the Gospels, you have what Jesus has done for us. I mean, John begins with these beautiful words, through him all things were made. In other words, what has Jesus done for us? First of all, he made us. But he goes on and says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. What has Jesus done for us? Well, of course, we could go through all the things that he's done that we find in the Gospels, but ultimately he's given us life that we have discovered through the light that he has shown on us. And then you have what's called the stipulations, just like it is in marriage. You know, I'll turn to a husband and I'll say, do you promise? And then you have the list of promises that he makes. And then I turn over to the you know, bride-to-be, do you promise? And, and go through all the list. And... Uh, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but recently I was cleaning out some files that I had, and I found a tape recording of mine and June's wedding. Now, I'm sure my grandkids will want to know, why didn't you videotape it? And my answer is, because, boys, there were no videotapes back then, okay? And this was an audio... I had to find... How many of y'all have an audio cassette player anymore? Have you noticed that we don't have many? Yeah, I got a few oldies here, you know... (laughs) I mean, there's a few of us around that have them, but let's be honest, most of us don't have one anymore. Now, now let me just go ahead and tell you, upstairs in my attic, I still have my eight-track player. Hasn't played anything in over 40 years, but I still have it. And so, I'm sure my grandboys, by the way, I've got to share this one with you. 
during Christmas, they found a box back in the back bedroom, and they started coming in the living room where I was at, and they said, Pops, what is this? And I said, well, son, that's a, that's a VHS cassette for, you know, video, uh, a video player. And they said, oh, it's an antique I said, it's just like Pops. It's an antique That's exact. My, my grandboys didn't have a clue what they were. You know, what are these devices? You have the promises made. Watch the promises here. Right off the bat, you go straight into the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And then coming right down through all of these Ten Commandments that are given. And what's fascinating about that is that when Jesus steps on the scene in Matthew, one of the things that a lot of us don't realize is that Matthew is a Jewish gospel. As a Jewish gospel, Matthew, as he writes it, writes Jesus in as the new Moses. I mean, he's constantly going back and grabbing images out of the Old Testament life of Moses and reinterpreting those through the life of Jesus. And just as Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, Jesus goes up on a mountainside, Matthew says, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And what you have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is literally the Magna Carta of Christianity. The very heart of who we are is the Sermon on the Mount. And it describes what Jesus expects of us and what we're supposed to give to him. And then after the stipulations, you have the document. You know, those of us who are preachers who do weddings, one of the things you have to do is you've got to get that marriage license out, you've got to get a witness, you've got to get it all signed, sealed, and you've got to deliver it. I remember many years ago... Uh, it was almost springtime. I went to grab a coat I hadn't worn since the previous spring, and, and I put it on. And when I put it on, I thought, man, what in the world's in my pocket? And I reached in my pocket, and I pull out, and it's a marriage license. I had failed to turn in. And I'm like, oh, no. Class C, misdemeanor. I'm serious. Y'all don't know, we preachers face a lot of challenges when we're doing this type of stuff. And so I go up to the courthouse, and I'm ready for the handcuffs to go on. You know, I'm just sure they're going to arrest me. Because here's a couple been living in fornication for about six months, you know. I mean, I had not filed a marriage license. And I went up to the clerk, and I said, ma'am, I am so sorry. Found this in the pocket. It was due six months ago. And she said, what is the problem with you preachers? I thought she was asking a generic question, and so I proceeded to explain all the problems we have, but had to do with the fact that we forget marriage license a lot. I didn't know other guys did it as well, but they do. There's always a document. Notice what God says. Come up to me on the mountain, and I'll give you the tablets of stone, written by the very finger of God, with all the commandments and stipulations of the law. Here's the heart of who you are in relationship to me and what I expect of you. And of course you get to the New Testament and you have John saying, guess what? These things are written. John said, these are things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so we too have a written document of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then number five, you have the witnesses. And of course, I've already mentioned the fact that you always have a witness that signs the marriage certificate. You have that kind of witness in marriage. 
You have another witness I'll talk about here in just a moment. But what you have here in Exodus is immediately after they enter into covenant relationship, Moses gets up the next morning, sets up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the way, if you read through the Old Testament, you see God's leaders doing that all the time. Joshua crossing over the Jordan River and each of the leaders of the tribes of Israel picks up a stone and carries it across and they set up this altar there as a remembrance of how God parted the waters for them to cross into the promised land. And so you always have this memorial, this reminder of entering into this relationship. And guess what? That's what we did just a few moments ago. That's what Jeff led us in. When he got up here and he said, this bread represents Christ's body. This cup represents his blood. What are we doing? We are reminding ourselves of the covenant we've entered into with God through Jesus Christ. And of course, those of us who do weddings will sit there after, you know, they take their initial vows and we'll say, are there rings? Are there rings to seal, you know, these these vows? And then the groom will take a ring and place it on the ring finger of his wife and she'll take a ring and place it on the ring finger of her husband and it seals those promises that they made. And that's what we do every time we gather around the table. And what's fascinating about the Exodus story is that God invites them to eat a meal as well. Now, it's not a meal that would be, you know, remembered ever so often for the rest of their history. It's a one-time meal, but it's one that is so odd. Notice here in Exodus 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the seven elders of Israel, God invites them up to the mountain, and they see God. One of the most amazing things in all the Old Testament, they see God. And notice verse 11, but God did not raise his hand against those leaders or these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and then God invited them to a dinner. Notice They ate and they drank in celebration of this covenant that they had entered into. And that's exactly what we do. And we do it literally. And I appreciate Stan when he got up this morning and said, this is the first day of the week. It's the day where we renew our relationship with God. It's the Lord's day. I mean, it's the day that the Lord has made. And so what are we doing? We're eating and we're drinking and we're reminding ourselves of this incredible relationship we've entered into and then there's the blood the blood that is sprinkled that just kind of brings it all together you you turn back to Exodus 24 Moses then took the blood sprinkled it on the people this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words sound familiar I mean we drink a cup a cup of the fruit of the vine It reminds us of Jesus' blood. As Jesus said in the upper room, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And and while that blood Moses had was sprinkled, this is poured out. And of course, Revelation describes us as literally being washed in that blood. And that's what makes us whole. And so you get all of these incredible steps in this covenant, steps that Moses went through with Israel, the same steps that we go through in Jesus Christ, and that those of us who have been married, so many of the same steps involved in that covenant relationship. And the end result, you're my treasured possession. You're my treasured possession. 
Now, we've got to be careful here. We've got to be careful because Israel made a horrible mistake. And that as God invited them to be his people, his treasured possession, before long they began to think that somehow they had earned it. Somehow they were special, not because, because God had chosen them through his mercy, but because of who they were. And if you're not careful, that sometimes happens to us as Christians. Instead of humility, it becomes arrogance. Instead of grace, it becomes, look what I have done. And, and it becomes almost what we call today, as far as the gospel is concerned, the transactional gospel. Of where people, they, they hear about Jesus Christ and they ask the question, what must I do to be saved? You know, when people ask me that, I still love Mark 16, 16. You know, what must I do to be saved? Well, he that believes and is baptized, you know, will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. One of the simplest phrases Jesus ever used to describe how we respond and enter into covenant with God through him. But if we're not careful, we make it transactional. I've seen people who have like, they, they, they've literally come and said, would you baptize me? Sure. You know, and of course, I, I talk to them about, you know, what it means to become a child of God and get in the waters. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. And I immerse them. But in their minds, it's not what's in my mind. In their minds, it's like going and buying life insurance. You know, you sign here on the dotted line, you pay your fee, and guess what? You've got the insurance. And, and, and our relationship with God and the covenant we enter into with Him is not like that. It's not transactional. I, I like, and, and of course, again, if we're not careful, that's what we get out of Mark 16, 16. We've got to explain it fuller than that. I like Matthew's version because Matthew says, yes, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But then you need to be taught. There's more to it than this, that initial, initial phase. It's a whole lot like getting married. You know, I thought that was a transaction. i got to be honest with you. I thought all i got to do is marry June, and then June will do whatever I want, and everybody will be happy. Didn't take me long at all to discover that, boy, somehow I had not had the concept right. I mean, I still tell people all the time, you know, uh, very, very first week, you know, we're back from the honeymoon, and we're, we're living in a little house trailer there in Ripley, Mississippi. I'm working, she's working, and, and I come in to take a shower, and the bath towels are folded wrong. I mean, I look at the towels, and I'm like, I said, June, she said, what? I said, why are the towels folded this way? And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, you don't fold them into trying or into three folds. You fold them into squares. And she looked at me and she said, that's not the way I fold them. And I said, well, that's the way I fold them. To which she then said, so do you want to fold them? To which I said, trifolds are fine. No problem. I had to learn how to live with June and she had to learn to live with me. And, and by the way, we're still learning after almost 43 years. That relationship is still growing. But it's a relationship that is, is not transactional. It is transformational. Uh, John Mike is doing some amazing work in this area of transformational relationships with God. 
I appreciate the work that he's doing so much as he works in people's lives to say, listen, you've got to get on a pathway that allows yourself to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God so that you become more and more like Jesus every day. And by the way, that's important not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationships with one another, especially in our relationships of marriage. And he says, if you'll do that, you become a kingdom of priests. I love what uh, the voice, the way the voice translates one of Paul's comments about why God has called us. And look at what, uh, how the voice translates 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we are now representatives of the anointed one, the liberating king. God's given us a charge to carry through our lives, urging all people on behalf of the anointed to become reconciled to the creator God. You know, oftentimes we think that the role of the priest was simply to offer sacrifices and to worship God, but the priest also had another responsibility, which was to teach the Israelites what God expected of them. And that priestly function is still a function that is as real today, you know, 4,000 years later, or 3,000 years later than it was then, and we are that kingdom of priests. And then you're a holy nation. Again, as humbly as we possibly can. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. I mean, do we want people to see what we do that's good? Yes. As long as they recognize that what we do is good is only because of the reflection we have of the ultimate light, which is God himself. And we need to be light in this community here at Hendersonville. We, like ancient Israel, have been planted in the world in these little communities so that people outside these communities look at us and go, those people are different. The way they act, the way they work, the way they they live, they're different. And there's something about how they're different that draws me to them. And that's the power of being a holy people. Peter, in his letter, would go back to Exodus and just grab it and pull it right back for his his people, his day. Notice almost the exact identical language, but you, now talking about us, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. That's who we are. That is, if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, how do you become one? It's not transactional. It's not you simply saying, I believe, and therefore I'm baptized, but it's saying, I believe. In fact, I believe so much, I'm giving my life to Him. And you begin that life through baptism, which then becomes transformational for the rest of your life. That's what God's calling us to. A life of being priest. All of us, men and women alike, we are a priesthood of believers. And of life of being a holy people. Hopefully through humility. Showing the world that there's a better way. And if that doesn't describe your life. Maybe it's time to give your life to Jesus. Maybe it's time to take the plunge if you haven't taken the plunge. If you haven't been buried with him in baptism. Maybe it's time to do that. And if you have been, uh, uh, become a Christian but you're still struggling. Maybe it's time that you learn that transformational process. 
of learning to be like him. We're here to help you. And we'd be glad to do it. If you want to, why don't you come right now. Let's go we stand and sing.